prayer. We're going to think about prayer tonight. Recently in the book of Acts, we've heard how vital prayer is for the church. And that raises the question, how should we pray? What should we pray about? And in one sense, we can pray about anything. So maybe the question should be, what priorities should we have in our prayers? I heard recently about a prayer meeting where a dead bunny was the subject of some prayers. Dear Lord, help so-and-so to cope with the loss of their bunny. Now that might be an acceptable prayer. It's probably pushing it, but it might just be acceptable. However, we have to ask, given all the things that we could pray about, do dead bunnies count as a good priority? I mentioned this to Megan, and she said, well, it probably depends what age you are. The best way to answer this question is to look at the prayers that are recorded for us in the Bible. What kind of priorities do we find in those prayers? How many bunnies do we find in those prayers? How many broken down cars? Or leaky roofs? Or varicose veins do we find in those prayers? If we don't find those things featuring in biblical prayers, then what do we find? Tonight we're going to look for the next while at one of Paul's prayers. It's a prayer that appears right at the start of his letter to the Colossians. And if you want to turn to that letter, you'll find it in the church Bible on page 1182. Colossians chapter 1. Page 1182. And we'll read the first 14 verses of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, 
who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. This is God's word. We're going to look at this whole letter over the next few months. And what we'll discover as we go through this letter is that the believers in Colossae are being tempted away from their belief in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It's being suggested to them by certain teachers that trusting in Jesus is great, but to really make it, you need to take on certain extra things. Paul calls them human commands and teachings. So Paul's main purpose in this letter seems to be to stress to these believers that Christ is all they need. That's why the subtitle on the screen is In Christ Alone. In Christ alone we find forgiveness and new life. In Christ alone we find hope for the future. And in Christ alone we find the ability to live a God-honoring life in the present. Everything Paul writes in this letter seems to be aimed at reminding these believers of the sufficiency of Christ. It seems that Paul had never actually met the Colossians. You'll say that later in the letter. But he's heard lots about them from Epaphras. And as he writes this letter from prison, he begins it with a prayer for them. It's a prayer that divides into two sections. In verses 1 to 8, we find what Paul gives thanks for. And then in verses 9 to 14, we find what Paul asks for. So first what Paul gives thanks for. Evidence that God's word is at work. Paul begins with a reminder that he's not writing to them as a self-appointed wise man. He writes, verse 1, as an apostle or a messenger of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He writes to them with God's authority. And he acknowledges that he's writing to men and women who belong to Christ. In verse 2, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ. And here, brothers means brothers and sisters. It's often used that way in the New Testament. Paul wants the best for these brothers and sisters. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So even though Paul hasn't met these believers in person... He writes as their brother in the Lord. He writes for their good. And he can find plenty to give thanks for as he prays for them. In verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Notice that Paul directs his thanks not to the Colossians. He thanks God for what God is doing among the Colossians. So the Colossians who are reading this will be encouraged, but they won't be puffed up. Because although this is about them, it's ultimately about what God is doing in them. It's important for encouragement to flow freely in the church. We should be public in giving thanks. 
But the church shouldn't turn into a mutual backslapping club. And the way to prevent that is to direct our appreciation to God for the good things that He's doing in and through others. And we shouldn't underestimate the blessing of being able to thank God. A while ago, Steve gave me a little card that he'd picked up at a restaurant. It had a quote from the comedian Stephen Fry. Stephen Fry said, Most of us don't say grace these days because we don't know who to thank for the inestimable pleasures of the table. That's pretty sad. But as Christians, we do know who to thank. God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Every good gift comes from Him. And that includes the good things He does in and through His people. And here Paul mentions three pieces of evidence that God is at work among the Colossians. First of all, he gives thanks for their faith in Christ Jesus at the beginning of verse 4. There's no doubt this includes the moment in their lives when they came to put their faith in Jesus. The day that they realized their desperate situation as guilty sinners who were cut off from God. And they trusted in Jesus' sacrificial death as their only way to be reconciled to God. Paul certainly gives thanks for that moment of initial saving faith. But I don't think that's all he's thinking of. What Paul has heard about these believers is that they're living a life of faith in Jesus. There's evidence to some degree that when they face trials and temptations and setbacks in their daily lives, they're living out their trust in Jesus. They're resting in the fact that he's worth more than the sin that's tempting them. That he's more valuable than the other things they could be chasing after. That he offers genuine security rather than the false security of money or good health or whatever else they're tempted to trust in. Paul thanks God because he hears the Colossians are living lives of faith in Christ Jesus. The second piece of evidence that God is at work is seen in the Colossians' love for God's people. Again, in verse 4, he says, The love you have for all the saints. The word saint is often used in a way that's very different from how the New Testament uses it. In the New Testament, saints are simply men and women who belong to Jesus. They're not super-Christians or elite, high-achieving Christians. The word saint comes from the Greek word for holy. Saints are men and women who have no holiness of their own. They're holy because Jesus' holiness has been transferred to their account. That happens when we put our faith in him. His holiness becomes ours because we don't have any of our own. So what Paul has heard about the Colossians is that they have a love for God's people. That doesn't just mean they have warm feelings for each other. It means they show care and concern in practical ways. 
The kind of love Paul is talking about is love in action. It's true that we're called to be loving to everyone who comes across our path. But for God's people, love begins with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then look what Paul says in verse 5. He says the faith and love he's been talking about spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Paul is not saying there's a little basket of hope waiting for them in heaven. The point is they are assured of what's waiting for them in heaven. All the good things God has promised are going to be theirs. When the New Testament talks about hope, it's not talking about a will it or won't it kind of hope. New Testament hope is assured hope. It's not uncertain hope. What Paul has heard about the Colossians and what he thanks God for is their assurance about the future. Sometimes people say that another person is so heavenly minded they're of no earthly use. But genuine heavenly mindedness makes us very useful here on earth. The heavenly mindedness of the Colossians produces their daily faith and love. That's what verse 5 says. This is how John Calvin has tried to explain the connection. He says, The hope of eternal life will never be inactive in us. Meditation on the heavenly life ravishes our affections to the worship of God and to exercises of love. In other words, when we think of what eternity holds for us, when we think of the fact that we'll see our Savior face to face, that we will live in His glory forever, and that we will be like Him, reflecting on those things makes all the difference now in the present. It enables us to trust Jesus, even when the present seems to be falling apart. It enables us to show genuine love to others. We can share our possessions and our time. We don't have to hoard stuff here on earth. Because one day, we'll inherit the new heaven and earth. Assurance about the future flows out in a life of faith and love. Paul has heard that this is happening in the church in Colossae. And he thanks God for it. But where did this assurance about the future come from? How did they find out about it? Verse 5 again. Paul says they heard about it in the word of truth. The gospel that has come to you. God's word has been at work in Colossae. Paul's fellow worker Epaphras brought the word... And God has used his word to bring assurance about the future, which has produced faith and love. That's why what Paul is ultimately giving thanks for is evidence that God's word is at work. This morning we heard about the word of God growing in the book of Acts. 
Here, Paul calls it the word of truth. It's the same thing. And the heart of that word is the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And Paul knows that Colossae isn't the only place where God is working through his word. Look at verse 6. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So here we've been given some priorities for our own prayers. It's good to give thanks that our runny nose has cleared up and that we passed our exams and that it didn't rain on our day out at the beach. Those kind of prayers are fine. But let's allow the Bible to set the priorities for our thanksgiving. When we see evidence that God's word is at work, producing assurance about the future, and producing faith and love, when we see that in the lives of individuals and in a church, then let's make it a priority to give thanks for those things. And in order to do that, let's be alert for signs of progress in those things. In our home groups, and when we chat together after church, let's get to know each other well enough to notice signs of progress. And Paul doesn't stop at giving thanks for God's work in Colossae. Verses 9 to 14 show us what Paul asks for. More of God's work. When we pull out our church prayer diary, it can be very easy for us to fall into a routine of saying, God bless Joe, God bless Sally, Amen. But when Paul prays, he is specific about how he wants God to bless people. In these verses, he asks God to bless the Colossians with increasing understanding of God's will, increasing obedience to God's will, and thankfulness for God's unshakable blessings. Look at verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Even though Paul has never met these Colossians, he prays regularly for them. And Paul is not content to pray for people until they become Christians and then forget about them. No, he prays regularly for believers too. And in his prayers, he asks that the Colossians will be blessed with increasing understanding of God's will. Often we think of God's will in terms of God's specific roadmap for my life. What subjects should I take? What trade should I learn? Or what college should I go to? Who should I marry? What job offer should I take? All those kinds of questions. 
And when we make it our goal to find out God's will about all those choices in life, we can get ourselves tied up in knots. And when we start looking in the Bible to find God's specific answer to those questions, we're likely to be disappointed. Or even worse, we're liable to interpret God's word in quite bizarre ways. Like the man who told me he decided to homeschool his kids when he read in Exodus that the Israelites left Egypt with their women and children. Now, I couldn't really see the connection either. But he saw Egypt as a picture of the state school system. And that's the kind of thing that tends to happen when we read our Bible to find specific answers to those kinds of questions. We start suspecting that every little detail in the text might be a sign about God's will. But the Bible itself talks about God's will in quite a different way. God has revealed his will clearly to us in the Bible. He has told us what he loves and what he hates. He has told us what is important to him. And he has given us many commands to follow. For example, we're told that God loves a cheerful giver. We're told that God hates a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. And God has commanded that whatever we do, we're to do it for the glory of God. Those are some examples of what the Bible means when it talks about God's will. God's will is God-centered. It's not about feeding me specific answers for the daily decisions I have to make. It's about showing me what God loves and hates so that I can honor him when I make my daily decisions. So, for example, when we ask the question, should I marry this particular person? The issue is not, is this the soulmate God has destined for me? The issue is, will I be able to have a God-honoring marriage with this person? Is this person genuinely concerned to live for God's glory? Or do they have other priorities in life? We can ask similar questions about all the decisions we have to make. When it comes to a job, or a financial investment, or a time commitment, is it going to help or hinder my ability to honor and glorify God? So then, when Paul asks God to give increasing understanding of his will, he's praying that the Colossians will grow in their understanding of what is truly important. He's asking that what's important to God will become more and more important to them. But he doesn't stop there. As they have increasing understanding of God's will, he wants to see increasing obedience to God's will. Verse 10, And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power 
according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. Paul wants to see the Colossians turning their increased understanding into increased obedience. Because understanding that doesn't lead to obedience isn't really understanding at all. If I come to see that something is important, if I really see the importance of it, it's going to change the way I live. For example, I can talk all day about the importance of physical exercise. But if I never do it, then the reality is I don't really think it is very important. When we are truly gripped by the importance of something, it will make a difference in our lives. And so Paul prays that the Colossians' growing understanding will be genuine understanding, that it will bear fruit, meaning it will produce good works. And notice what he says at the end of verse 10. As they live out the understanding they have, they'll get more understanding. Obedience to what we know of God's will leads to growth in the knowledge of His will. That's how it works. We obey what we know to obey, and as we do, we discover new ways to obey. But Paul knows, of course, that if this kind of obedient life is going to happen... The Colossians need God's power. In verse 11, only God can give them the great endurance they need to stay on the right path and keep going on the right path. Only God can give them the great patience they need, patience in difficult circumstances and patience with difficult people. Notice Paul doesn't pray that all their troubles will be taken away. He doesn't ask for their lives to be one long holiday. That's not going to happen in this life. It wouldn't be good for us if it did happen. We'd never grow. We'd have no longing for heaven if life was perfectly peachy for us all the time. But Paul does pray that as these believers seek to obey, God will give them great endurance and patience. And finally, he prays that it won't be a miserable, grim kind of endurance and patience. Paul doesn't want the kind of endurance that says, I'm still following God, I've never turned away from Him, and I'm not happy about it. It cost me a lot to stick with God. He owes me. No, Paul prays that the Colossians' understanding and obedience will be accompanied by thankfulness for God's unshakable blessings. Look at the end of verse 11. He wants to see them joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. God doesn't owe us anything. He has poured out infinite blessings on us 
and all of them are undeserved. Back in verse 10, when we read about living a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing the Lord, we might have wondered if we're supposed to earn our acceptance with God. But these final verses show us that's not the case. We're called to live a life worthy of God and to please Him because He has already accepted us. Through faith in Christ, we have an inheritance in heaven. We've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of light, Christ's kingdom. And in Christ, we've received forgiveness of sin. We've been set free from our slavery to sin. All these blessings were given to us before we had done a thing to please God. And so we don't serve Him out of fear, wondering, will He be pleased with me or not? No, we serve Him knowing that He is pleased with us. Because of Jesus, we stand before God redeemed and forgiven. And that acceptance we already have is the basis of our desire to please Him. We serve Him not to earn His favor, but because we have His favor. And all of these signs of His favor, these blessings, they're eternal and unshakable. None of the things Paul mentions here are dependent on our circumstances. These things are true whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. We may not always have good health to thank God for, or a good work environment, or good relationships, or good exam results, or good neighbors. But the blessings that Paul mentions here are always ours. Paul's prayer for the Colossians is that whatever their circumstances, they will be able to recognize and joyfully give thanks for God's unshakable blessings. Maybe we hear this and we feel the need to pray what David prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation because I've lost that joy. I've let my circumstances blind me to the blessings of redemption and forgiveness and my eternal inheritance. And this is also a model for our prayers for others. We're to give thanks when we see evidence that God's word is at work in others. And we're to ask for more of God's work in their lives. Paul prayed that the Colossians would be thankful people. He mentioned the unshakable blessings they have in Christ. And in a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, a reminder of our unshakable blessings. And so we're going to remember, first of all, how those blessings were won for us. We're going to sing together, Jesus Christ, I think upon